back to Sysadminist Trivia, the podcast where our bosses ping us even when we're recording. This is Brent. I'm the Black Bean Bandit. I'm Peyton. Okay, so this is probably our third time. We've been having to take so many takes on recent episodes. But let's just note, it's not my fault for once in my life. No, Literally I feel like at least one of this. the times it, it's been it actually fault. It actually is always your fault, too. Literally, for the first time in my life, something wasn't my fault. Every other time, I fully admit that I fuck everything. <laughs> But the, right now, it's not my fault. No, 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 no. The three takes for this episode so far have totally been my fault. And I recognize that. But I feel like the last episode, at least one of them was definitely your fault. I do think I forgot to open Audacity, maybe. <laughs> but that's you, like a small you've thing. You've done that more it's than It's a small once. thing. Uh, that's relative. But anyways. <sighs> see, we've got some pretty nice laid-back topics. They're, I'll be honest, Laden they're filler. In juice. No, I'll, I'll be honest, they're filler. There's there's no juice. But straight up, I'm going to be honest with you, because that's how I keep the show. They're filler. Orange but juice. we're at least going to keep it interesting. Very interesting. I'm sure we'll find at least one thing to argue about. Laden so, in juice. Oh, why do you have to make it so weird? People like me. <laughs> it's like Yeah, I'm... until they start, like, interacting with you in IRC, and then, like, everybody's... After... Okay, so, like... Oh, my God. With... The tech steward, he joined, and he was like, he was a number one Jathan fan. And then he actually started talking to Jathan. <laughs> and now he's on the anti-Jathan team. He is not. He's he absolutely is. is. He totally 100%. is. 100%. 100%. No he, he understands my perspective now. Absolutely. And then I feel like the same thing happened with Skip. When he started listening, he's like, why do you, why do you give Jathan such a hard time? And then he's hanging in our channel, and now I feel like he's anti-Jathan too. So, Jathan, what I'm trying to say is you destroy everything you touch. Yeah, that's why I can't find love. Oh my god. <laughs> Stuck here with well, a microphone in the closet. You know, if you had gone to work for Apple, you might have found love. No, I don't think so. Yeah, you're right. I would have. No, no, no. I'd have found some hot Apple chick who no. was all about me, and she's like, likes the way I do my job or no. something. Super no. Super turned on. No, probably not. You never would have been super turned on, buddy. I'm sorry. No, not me, her. Watching me type and, like, reliability engineer things? I don't think so. I'm pretty sure that would not happen. Skip says, I'm Jathan neutral. Yeah, but, like, just five minutes ago, he created a... He wanted to create a Jathan AI to act like a jackass to fulfill a missing place. So, like, But at know. least he wants to replace me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, we, we, we all want to replace you. Know what? you. I'm going to take a fucking glass half full attitude for the rest of this episode. <laughs> okay. Fuck you guys. Keep if the, you want to keep... be goddamn negative Nancy's <laughs> and you don't want to just like, <laughs> let me be happy for once in my life. Fuck you. I don't care. Like, just mute yourself. I'll just talk about how great my life is. Gosh. No, we're not going to do that. Anyways, so the episode tonight, we're going to be talking about some high availability networking concepts. Mm-hmm. Not too much in depth, because we've actually got three topics tonight. Our second topic is going to be on UUIDs, which are uh, universal unique identifiers. Did that from memory. It's impressive. And we're also going to be talking, slash, I guess, trashing on App Armor. Please. Yeah. It's terrible, but we'll we'll talk more about that about that then. It's what are y'all the drinking? What? <laughs> it's the UAC of uh, of Ubuntu. No, yeah. it's not. It yeah. totally is, and it's Absolutely. not just Ubuntu. It's not. It has app armor. It's like a shittier SE <laughs> Linux, but we'll talk more about that when we get to it. Right. right, right, right. What are y'all drinking? Well, I'm drinking an Alaskan summer ale, which is a Kolsch style ale with a meager two to three ounces of vodka in it because that's the kind of day I had and you guys are trying to bring me down and I'm not letting it happen. Oh my gosh. All right. What about you, Peyton? I have Glen Livet, Glen Livet, single malt Scotch whiskey, 12 years old. It's very okay. good. It's quite delicious. I am, uh, I'm back on that Bullet Bourbon 10, the 10 year batch. Nice. I kind of like the the normal bullet better, the normal bullet mm. bourbon. I had some uh, Macallan uh, double cast, twelve year old, couple Friday, mm-hmm. and uh, it was quite delicious. I'm actually considering using all of my alcohol money for for that bottle to buy a bottle to have here. I don't really get an allowance of, of alcohol money. I just was saying, you know. Well, you got to put it in the budget. Right, right, right. right. I Absolutely. wonder. Yeah. Since I'm ten ninety nine, and I mean. Alcohol is basically a requirement for for this field. I wonder if I can right. put alcohol as a tax deductible. Negative, Ghost Rider. I, I would not <laughs> label it as alcohol as such, more, more as 
office supplies. No, uh, office mor- supplies. morale, uh, morale incentive, or you know, something <laughs> incentivization. Just claim that it's like therapy. Yeah, there you there, go. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. Like, oh, what did a medical you do? cost. I had to go meet with my therapist, Johnny. Johnny Walker. <laughs> Johnny Walker. Johnny Walker. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and his practicing associate, Jack Daniels. I don't. That motherfucker I, took one look at me, and he Johnny walked straight the fuck out the room. What? Oh my gosh. Let's let's just move on. I I can't do this. Can, can we? Can we? Yeah. Let's you know go what? to the news. No, 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 Jason. No, we're going to the news. Half full. Keep up the energy. Half full. Woo! Okay. This is Peyton in the news. This weekend news. The schools are being seen as a breeding ground for both the cyber workforce and as a data-rich target for hackers. We've featured schools a lot, actually, on our show about being compromised and having to pay uh, you know, ransoms. But in March of 2015, a cyber attack confronted f- officials at the Swedesboro Woolwich School in New Jersey with a sudden demand for ransom money. The ransomware attack, simplified by the weak credentials of a third-party network maintenance vendor, didn't succeed. But it did wreak havoc by preventing students at four schools from taking tests and required a two-week network cleanup. So, uh, basically, this uh, report... Uh, just goes over. It's, it says it's it's actually a pretty nice article. Just going over, uh, you know, um, what they're looking for, why these schools in particular are so bad. And we all know why because they don't have you know backups or you know good firewall security or anything right. like that. You know, I'm surprised that it wasn't like they say. You know, they didn't pay the ransom, which is great. Yeah, which everyone should not do. Right. Not pay it, I mean. I'm surprised that they managed to have that much success, because I feel like if this was an in-house IT rather than outsource IT, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have gotten that far in the first place. But right, right. But then again, I think we've also seen that, like, schools are pretty... They're not the best funded, and as a result, they don't Which hire the best sysadmins. And... Not entirely their fault. Yeah, no, sure, right, sure. Right, right. But, like, that's not the point I'm trying to make. My point is, like, they, they tend to hire subpar IT. Sure. So. Well... A part of me wonders if it's not their own fault for for that because they you know oh it's just a couple of computers we don't need a whole staff and in reality you know you need a network guy you need a couple of help desk guys you need a server guy you need email etc 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 you know you can't just go off of one or two guys and there are land students who are I would say the best beta testers in the world for a network because they will abuse the crap out of it you know. Sure, yeah, and even the article, the article does go into that about how, you know, students will use mm-hmm. perhaps risky VPN providers because they're free and students are right. cheap. You mean like MySafe VPN? <laughs> hey, throwback! Hey! Yeah, so, yeah, keep going, but... Okay, all right. That's probably something, that's probably a topic we would want to explore in a future episode. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the next bit of news is BrickerBot, the permanent dev- denial of service botnet, is back with a vengeance. So this actually uh, is a botnet that permanently capacitates poorly secured Internet of Things. So your refrigerator that has a Wi-Fi connection. Or your juicer. Or your juicer, or your dryer. Or your dishwasher, etc., etc., etc. It capacitates them before they can be conscripted into internet crippling denial of service armies. Is back, and it was found by a guy named Pascal. I am going to butcher this name. Geenens, G E G E E N E N S. He first documented it when the first the new version came out called BrickerBot.3. It appeared out of nowhere on April 20th, exactly one month after BrickerBot.1 first surface. It was quicker in its attacks, 1,295 attacks in just 15 hours, and it used a modified attack script that added several commands designed to more completely shock and awe its targets. BrickerBot 2 did 12 attacks per day. BrickerBot 1 did 1,895 volleys during the four days that it was active. So keep an eye out for this. It was actually targeted on, it looks like, Mirai. Mirai. M-R-M-I-R-A-M. Oh, Mirai, yeah. Yeah. They have a Syracam AP-003 metal gun type waterproof outdoor bullet IP camera. Wow. Which is actually known to be vulnerable. So why it's still out there and not patched, who knows? But uh, yeah. And then our next bit of news is we have the CyberShield Act. This is a new legislative approach to improving cybersecurity. The CyberShield Act is a legislative proposal designed to cut to the core of critical infrastructure cyber defense. It is proposed by Senator Edward J. Markey of Massachusetts. Hey, great. But there's no draft of it anywhere. Oh, I, I think they're still composing the draft. Is, sure. Is the, it's still in the sure. discussion stages. Yeah. But it seeks to give the consumers of security products better and more accurate information on which to base their purchasing decisions. Listen, does it give me more gigahertz? 
Well, that's the general question you, you have. You have in the notes. <laughs> you have in the notes that it's bullshit, and I'm wondering why you think that. Because it says cyber security, and it's a cyber shield act. Well, that's all right. <laughs> you need to understand, like in, in terms of mass appeal, the name is is what they're going to recognize. Oh, I you agree. Call it as like computer security or digital security or something like that. People will be like, what's that? They see cyber and they're like, oh, okay, that has to do with internet and crap. No, no, I, I agree but completely. The, the discussions I'm seeing so far are things I have even asked for on the show multiple times. Mm. Requirements for like IoT provider, IoT vendors and stuff to change default credentials uh, for the end user. Well, stuff like that. I mean, so yeah, I, that would be great if that happened. Yeah, so the stuff I'm seeing in there, I'm actually pretty happy about because it does put more liability on these vendors and engineers and so on and so forth and honestly like we would have a lot less botnets if people were doing this from the beginning just make the thing not work until the user changes the password ideally have password strength uh, limits you know so like i don't know why they weren't doing that from the beginning i don't either i don't either i all i know is is that you know if you have comcast you can get into your router with admin admin and if yeah. you're a business customer you can get in with cuss admin high speed yeah and all of these all yeah. of these lists <laughs> for every single model like right. it's really easy to find and download a, a list of default usernames and passwords for just about any model out there and then what netgear's what like admin is the password and that's it? I have no idea. I don't use anyway. Nick here, so I don't, I don't know. Right. But yeah, my point is these are well documented. Uh, you can look up them. You can Google the model number and default password and, and mm-hmm. get thousands, if not millions of results. So I just, you know, my thing is I'm tired of the word cyber being thrown together. Cyber terrorism, cyber this, cyber, and it's, you know. I don't want to see the word Cyber Shield Act. Like I would rather see like like a, a legitimate name for it. And I get what you're saying that it's you know people understand what cyber is, but they don't really understand what cyber security is. They think well, they know what I it mean, is. there's that's the whole point of the bill is is so that people get more educated on it. And sure. yeah, sure, I, I hate that terminology as well, but at the same time, like that's what it's been canonized into in our yeah, infrastructure. Yeah. So it's too like late to really do anything about it. Is that a real word? Yes. canonized whatever it's fine i mean xerox is the same thing i mean you should say go make a copy of this but people say go make a xerox of this so like you know it's it's just a word that's been like you said it's yeah, been brought yeah in sure and, uh, i mean it's a little bit different because cyber wasn't really a brand name but it's, it's close enough yeah yeah same same idea sure but i don't know i i don't have much of an issue is it with it because we're not gonna be seeing that terminology that's just what it's referred to like we're gonna see the effects of it i would hope because it looks like a good bill but I, we're not gonna see the actual name of it i think often. just uh sort of in general like Anything that is advancing a cause, you know, especially from a legal or like legislative standpoint, when we're talking about the government that moves at a fucking snail's pace, True. I'm more interested in the substance than the name. And honestly, the other thing is like, do we really have a better word to describe it than cyber anyway? That's like universally or close to universally understood? Well, no. I mean, taxonomically, I guess, uh, taxonomically, it probably should be digital security or computer security or something along those lines. But people see cyber and, and they, they just know what it is. You do need to make some kind of compromise with that, I think. Mm-hmm. If you're going to nitpick about the name, it, it's going to crawl even slower. So oh, Yeah, sure. No, I get what you're saying completely. You know, I just, that's my thing. It's just, I just don't as well yet. But I mean, you're, what you say makes sense. Mm. So, sure. All right, keep going. All right, so next thing. Uh, so companies are paying millions to get hacked on purpose. Now, the reason for this, and there's, uh, you know, the, the adage, the best defense is a good offense. There's a company called HackerOne, which is a San Francisco-based vulnerability coordination and bug bounty platform. And it has some 800 corporate customers who paid out more than $15 million. Clients that have used the platform include General Motors, Uber, Twitter, Starbucks, and even the DoD. Now, the reason why they have started doing this is because around 2015, there was uh, a wake-up call when the controls of a Jeep were commandeered by a hacker using a laptop miles away. Now, the parent company, Fiat Chrysler, recalled more than a million vehicles. It basically just goes into saying, hey, you know, uh, if you want to help cybersecurity, it's best to be, you know, blue team instead of red team. Or even be red team, but be... Sure, red team for the good guys. This actually reminds me of our discussion at Hope with Johnny and Deviant, Mm -hmm. because... I think it was Johnny who was really talking about how he wished more people would just invest the money into, you know, trying to get hacked, basically. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> granted, he is a red team pentester, so, like, he and B- Deviant both are, and we'll link to the episode, but mm-hmm. it does I don't that. think he really said that out of any sort of, uh, you know, selfish means. I, I really no, think no. he's being altruistic, and I, I agree with him, and I'm, by career, I'm blue team, you know, so I, I definitely agree with him. More places 
need to and should do more pen test, more pen testing. So yeah, look for those we, firms, look for the reputation and hire them. We get pen tested all the time. I mean, we're constantly, they had a big pen test going on for most of the time, most of my last year that I've been there. So that's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah, no, we got phishing emails, all kinds of stuff. You know, uh, hey, Jathan, what kind of headphones do you have again at work? At work? Yeah. Bose QC20s. Did you know that they may be spying on you and there's a lawsuit about that as well, too? Well, they're not wireless, so there's that. Okay. Well, Bose Corp <laughs> spies on its wireless headphone customers by using an app that tracks the music, podcasts, and other audio they listen to. There is a complaint that was filed on Tuesday by Kyle Zach in Chicago in a federal court, and he saw he's seeking an injunction to stop Bose's wholesale disregard for the privacy customers who download its free Bose Connect app from Apple Inc. or Google Play stores. Jason, what? There's still EM attacks. <laughs> I really don't give a fuck. <laughs> Honestly, like. It'd be a service because they're going to just hijack me listening to us. <laughs> okay. And they're going to so be the, like, damn, these guys are good. I should listen. I don't, so he's, I don't think he's, they're going to say that. He's seeking millions for buyers of headphones and speakers, including the Quiet Comfort 35, the Quiet Control 30, SoundLink, Around Ear Wireless Headphones 2, the SoundLink Color 2, SoundSport Wireless, and SoundSport Pulse Wireless. He'd like to hold the data collection, and he says it violates the Federal Wiretap Act. I don't think it does. It totally does. Okay, OS writer, can you uh, please let me know if I'm wrong on that? Thank you. The next bit of news we have is that a design flaw in LastPass two-factor authentication implementation. Oh, there are design flaws in LastPass two-factor authentication implementation. No fucking surprise. Yeah, right. Tavis Ormandy has reported multiple zero days in LastPass. Two-factor, of course, is an additional layer of security to protect user accounts from attackers that have already compromised your password. So you usually will get an additional challenge. It's usually a six-digit temporary code that changes every 30 seconds. You can use Google Authenticator, Authy, and Twofer. They support these based on the RFC 6238 and RFC 4226. The problem is it's a QR code. Yeah, so it's a nice little article here. He goes over what he did to bypass it. Take a look. Don't use LastPass. And is this it? Oh, yeah. So the last bit of news here is that the antivirus web root deletes Windows files and causes serious problems for users. I believe it was saying that Facebook was a phishing site. There is a forum that's 14 pages and counting. The company did come up with a manual fix to address the issue, but many users are still having problems recovering their affected systems. The problem is what's known in the antivirus industry as a false positive. Ah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's bad. Use, use Linux, people. Use Linux. Just a bare bones VM. Just a just bare bones VM. Maybe a <laughs> decent antivirus if you have to sure. use Windows. Like sure. don't Norton. Norton works. That's a really good one. I can't. I'm not going to make any vouchers because I haven't. Uh, I haven't used Windows in like 12 years. But. <laughs> I was being facetious. Okay. I, I was being facetious. Okay. Norton is terrible. Don't use Norton. Got it. <laughs> and that's it with the news. We have a. Uh, We've got a topic here about sharing IP addresses in a high availability environment. And it's, I don't know, I'm kind of torn on it in general because I think it's a bad way of approaching. But let's talk to our resident high availability admin, Jathan. No, that's not me. <laughs> I mean, you ma- you manage a, an HPC cluster, so there's got to be some amount of heart beating, right? Not really. Sort of. <laughs> Well, okay. No, 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 that's not true. I'll tell you. Hold on. Well, I want to just talk. This is my topic that I added. And mm-hmm. part of it stems from we had uh, we had something that went down on Easter Sunday at about three o'clock in the morning. And I'm not going to detail specifics regarding what it was. But fortunately, there was a high availability component in place such that, you know, nobody noticed except, of course, me getting, you know, 950 million bajillion emails about it. Not from people, but just from the machine itself that was like, you know, I'm broken. And it sort of got me thinking about high availability in general. So as Brent mentioned, we do, or, you know, I do maintain, help maintain some compute clusters. Ultimately... You know, the cluster itself, if we're talking about, you know, 80 nodes or 100 nodes or whatever number it may be, if something happens to a single node, the jobs that were running on there through the scheduler are basically gone. Like, there's not really much I can do about that. It's not like one node will automatically fail over to another that's still in the cluster and free. But where we do have a high level of redundancy, or not really redundancy, but where we do have high availability built in, um, is the storage that's backing the cluster. So, you know, we have an undisclosed amount, I'm sure I've mentioned it before at some point, of storage attached to the cluster that's, you know, persistent and, of course, backed up off-site, all that. And 
literally, you know, if the storage went down and, you know, people were running on 10,000 cores, that'd be a really big loss of data potentially, or like a lot of jobs would be intermittently interrupted. And, you know, then when we get things back up and people are cramming to try to resubmit their jobs, yada, yada, it gets to be messy. So we do have a high availability storage solution integrated with the cluster such that if something happens to the primary storage or yeah, I mean, the primary storage, I guess, there is a failover component that just picks up where it left off. And there might be like, you know, a brief second where NFS is lost on the client. But fortunately, NFS is pretty intelligent, sort of, not really. It's it's persistent. We'll say it's persistent. And so it will continue trying to connect. And even if it was in the middle of writing a file, it will actually basically be able to realize that file wasn't written correctly. And it will try again when it reaches uh, or basically gets a heartbeat back. So this got me thinking about high availability in general. The other place where we definitely have high availability is our VMs because Mm. that hosts a lot of our front-facing web stuff. So we basically have a high availability cluster for our VMs that's running VMware. But you don't manage that though, do you? Not directly, Mm. necessarily, I guess. Like there's definitely somebody else who takes more responsibility for that than I do, but I've had my hands on it more and more just to make sure I know what the fuck I'm doing, I guess. Sure. So all that to say that while I don't actually know what VMware does under the hood, mm-hmm. this is really where it got me thinking is like when one of the VM systems crashes and all the VMs get migrated basically to another host instantaneously, you know, there's an internal network basically between the VM and the host. And that's how like all the routing and stuff like that happens. But it got me thinking about the concept of like, how do you do this if you don't have either your own hardware or like, you know, in the... God forbid, please don't kill me. But if you're running in the cloud, I know, I know. How do you have or maintain two instances that are separated geographically? So maybe you have one instance that's in California and another on the East Coast, right? If the one in California goes down, and granted, based on the idea of how most IP addresses and addressing works, this this actually wouldn't be plausible. But how do you basically make it so customers don't see an interruption and it just automatically starts redirecting to you know your East Coast location or whatever? I actually wanted to correct you on that. It is possible for internet routing to do that sort of failover in a way. So there's something called Anycast. And okay. what is that this... does, I'm sorry? Well, okay, real quick. Is it possible to just do this purely at a DNS level? Mm, You can do a poor man's version of it, but I would not recommend it. So if you were to set up two instances and you were using, they had identical host keys and you use something like HA proxy mm. and the DNS round robin, if one host went down, would all requests automatically go to the one that's still there? Not if you were DNSing round robin and in the H. So HA proxy is supposed to take the place of the DNS round robin. DNS round robin is the poor man is the poor man's version of failover. You can use HA proxy plus a DNS round robin. I wouldn't recommend it. And well, here's why. I, and, and I don't know why you would, honestly, but I know yeah, you can. Yeah, here's why. So if you're using round robin within that HA proxy, mm-hmm. it's not going to know which one goes down immediately. So if you use specific DNS records or even just, you know, unique IP addresses for each of the, we'll call them nodes, because yeah, that's technically accurate, for each of the nodes in that high availability, high availability cluster, then it's going to know, okay, this one stopped responding. I'm going to take that out of the, out of the, pool if you do round robin it's not going to know because usually on linux systems dns caches so it's always going to result you can really only resolve to one ip at a time you can pull the records for all of them you know you can do like an ns lookup or something and, and get the records for all of the ones that are round robining but if you're trying to hit a browser your browser is only going to connect to one ip what ha proxy will how that would handle that is it would act as that one ip and then you would connect to the ha proxy and then the proxy would check to see which ones are up which ones are available which ones are under the least load things like that so it does like it mixes load balancing in there which is a relevant but not entirely on topic topic and so if your ha proxy goes down you're you're just yeah okay yeah in that case you would want to use something like anycast Either you can do that at the internet level or, you know, in your data center, what have you. What that does is that lets two hosts have the same IP address and it'll geographically pick whichever one is closest. Typically, it's used in internet applications. So, yeah, like, I was going to say, f- that's got like SAS written all over it, basically. Uh, sure. Yeah. So, like, in, I know Amazon does it, Google, Google DNS specifically. It's if you try and trace route 8.8.8.8. 
it's going to change depending on your geographic location because it's not the same physical box. It's pointing to whatever box is closest to you in that Anycast group. And that's immensely useful, but it's a pain in the ass to set up. And typically that's done at like the data center sort of level. I also imagine if something's going wrong with it, it's probably pretty hard to troubleshoot, but maybe not. Uh, Well, a trace route would probably help. And usually they have like a second interface or a second IP on the same interface that they use as a sort of debugging IP. Got it, yeah. And, you know, like, especially if you need to SSH into a specific box, you don't want to just kind of play roulette with it and, you know, just automatically SSH into whichever one's closer. But yeah, typically like they're going to have another IP assigned or part of like a VLAN or GRE network or something like that, where it'll be some method of directly connecting to a specific box. But for public services, yeah, they're going to use that Anycast group. And then there's multicast, which is, I mean, that's kind of relevant. Like it really depends all on the application. So there's also multicast and broadcast. There's also unicast, which is just host to host, which is what most people think of when they hear network connection, right? But multicast is like, you could either take one host or many hosts and then broadcast it to a bunch of different hosts. Typically that's like across subnets and things like that. It's not really, you don't really see that used a lot except for protocols that specifically make use of it. And then broadcast, everyone should know what that is. That's things like ARP, where it's typically, you know, LAN level. It's useful for routing and things like that. And I, Jathan, was it you that linked me to the DigitalOcean thing? Yeah, I did because. Okay. So I don't know, in my targeted ads. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what this tells you about me, but in my targeted ads, I've been seeing a repeat sort of basically an article that was written by someone at Linode. Mm. And I'll see if I can find it to edit the show notes. That's basically like, look how we help this client set up a high availability thing, right? Mm. And so I started looking into it a little bit, and it doesn't look like Linode has, like, an official guide. And again, if you're listening, you work at Linode, and you do, let us know. We'll put it in. But DigitalOcean seems to have more information about it that's just, like, readily available. Oh, well, that's because, from what I understand, DigitalOcean has, like, Linode does have, like, a way of, like, kind of fast switch over, but it's not going to be as fast as what DigitalOcean does, and I'll, I'll explain why. Yeah, and so... so- The whole reason also, so, you know, I just described some ways that we have a high availability option uh, Mm. where I work and with regards to what I'm working on, but I would like to at least delve into and set up a few more situations sort of in a more manual fashion. Sure. Just to say I have the experience and, you know, there's certainly a few applications where I could think of it being useful. Right. And Well, for your application... Obviously, you know, depending on what it is, HA proxy is probably going to be your best bet. Just knowing that you you've got people who submit jobs to a cluster. Yeah, and well, and so you, the it clusters, sounds like you've already got stuff that handles that, though, right? Yeah, job, we already job use balancing. H- okay, HA proxy, I think. Oh, okay. So you're using it. Actually, we might not. It might just be DNS. But oh. so the cluster in question that actually has multiple login nodes, which is where you go to like stage jobs and stuff, was basically established before I started working there. So I just don't know as much about all that. Right. And I haven't dug into it. But no, it's more so like like one of my ideas, at least, and, you know, take this or leave it. I don't know if this is ever going to happen, but I would really like to set it up so that... So this is a bit of a diversion, but ZFS has the ability to import and export storage pools. Mm-hmm. And I would like to have basically one physical, like, JBOD full of disks that's connected to two ZFS storage systems. And basically write functionality so that one, if one, you know, like the actual controller goes unresponsive, the other node realizes that and just automatically imports the pool. But they share basically an address space or an IP address or something so that clients still trying to connect could still basically, it'd be like a seamless thing, right? The problem there is that you're going to have to figure out a way to do data duplication across the two. What do you mean? So if they try and read data back or, or fetch data, if you will. Yeah. And it's it happens to be on that box or storage cluster or whatever that has the, the down controller, they're not going to be able to do that. No, no, but the disks are shared between the two. The actual storage pool is connected, you know, physically connected to both. But both, both what? So if we had two, let's call them management nodes, right? Two basically servers. Mm-hmm. And each one had like a 40 gigabit connection to a JBOD that had all these disks in it. There's one JBOD, right? Yes, one okay. JBOD. So we can imagine that, you know, box zero actively has the pool, the ZFS pool, which resides entirely on this JBOD or the disks in the JBOD, basically connected right now. But box zero goes down for some reason. All of a sudden, box one, which also has a physical connection to the JBOD, 
realizes or recognizes that box zero has gone down. And all of a sudden, box one says, force import this pool from all these disks in this JBOD and basically pick up where the other one left off. So obviously things that were like literally in stream, like being sent or received at the exact moment that it went down, those would still be interrupted in some capacity, I think. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you're going to have at least a little bit of issue there. But basically so that until someone got downstairs or whatever and diagnosed why box zero went down, box one just takes over without us having to do anything. Yeah, so and in that case, you'd want heart beating and, and things like that. Yeah, and, and so there there's are... actually, there is an HA plugin for sort of like Solaris and ZFS specifically mm. that already exists. But in my limited, and I'm going to admit this, in my limited experience with it, it does not work that well. So I have a strong interest in trying to do it myself just to see, like, what are the pitfalls? And, you know, I'm not going to do it on a front-facing system. I really just want to do it for the learning experience and, like, you know, testing. But Sure. So stream-based things are really hard to do high availability of. And obviously this includes IO operations. So Sure. And for a good reason, by the way. Well, yeah, because uh, otherwise it'd be slow as shit. But you're not, the issues you were seeing with that plugin, I doubt you're going to be able to do much better because it's such a stream sensitive operation. So how do you ever get around that? Like what makes accessing a particular web service? Well, see, that's the thing, I guess, is a web services request, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not a stream. Yeah, typically at that point you would have data duplication and like database slaved databases and all a, a very robust multiple architecture behind that those balancers got it and there's probably multiple balancers too so it's not really you would have to set up an entirely different sand with duplication to do what you want to do and even then you know the problem with duplication is like yeah you can you can get it syncing pretty quickly to like within milliseconds but there's still going to be some weird things that pop up it's also expensive as shit if you're talking about if you're talking about Yeah, if you're talking about a half petabyte of storage that you have to have two copies of, all of a sudden you're at a whole petabyte just to support this HA feature, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would say it's probably more trouble than it's worth for you to look into. I mean, if you just want to do it for the learning experience, sure, why not? But we'll link to it, but the DigitalOcean article he listened to says they're trying to tout this full high availability thing, but here's the issue with it. I'm pretty sure all they're doing is just changing ARP records. Which is a really fast, cheap, and easy way of doing kind of balancing and kind of this high availability thing. In which case you have like sort of an inert box and then an active box and then both share would have the same IP address set internally. And then the router would say, you know, obviously this doesn't work too well with DHCP. This is, this is going to be a static routing kind of a thing. And then the router knows which box to go to for a certain IP address via ARP. So it maintains a table, an ARP, ARP table, and I forget what ARP is. Uh, addressing routing protocol? Addressing, maybe? I can't remember. Address sure resolution I'll... protocol. Thank you. Yeah, and that would make and more sense. And it's specifically IPv4? Does IPv6 not have... There, yeah, IPv6 has its own thing. Okay. It's with IPv6. ARP was kind of like tacked on, sort of, like bolstered into the IPv4 spec. With IPv6, they right off the bat, they were like, all right, each host is going to have a link local address. And that is how the router will know, because it's automatically going to be unique for every host. So it's, it makes ARP obsolete. It makes the need for ARP obsolete. So you don't, that's why it doesn't exist in IPv6. But that's a whole nother episode. And I would love to do an IPv6 episode sometime, but I need to brush up on it. So with ARP, it has a table saying, okay, this IP address should resolve, basically route to a machine with this MAC address. And we all know what MAC addresses are, I should hope. It's that, you know, six byte hex, I think. I don't have an Apple. What are we talking about? Oh my gosh. I'm sorry. Okay. Anyways, so the router knows which sort of physical destination to go to to route those packets for a certain IP address. And that's how IP addressing works. All DHCP does is just automate all that. So with what I think DigitalOcean is doing, they're just changing the entry in the ARP table. That's it, to point to a different machine. Or I guess in this case, a different VM, what have you. So it's not really that new or that special. Sure. I mean, you can do it yourself in a home lab. All you would need is a router with direct ARP manipulation access. So Linux can do it. If you've got like an open WRT router, you can do it. And I hate when companies do this because they're trying to make this old standard thing 
appear as some brand new hype marketing hype bullshit, but I'm pretty sure that's how they're doing it because you're not really going to benefit a lot from a, uh, from a high, an actual high availability cluster in that sense. Sure. Peyton, do you have anything to say about this? Yeah. I found it very interesting. I was reading about it and I really like the, uh, the setup of it. I mean, it's kind of cool. I mean, I knew what a broadcast address was, you know, or a broadcast was, but I had not done any reading prior to this about Unicast or any cast. I mean, I had seen some multicasts. We got asked about multicasts all the time at uh, Cordon, mm-hmm. actually. A, a slightly different variation of this, but yeah, I mean, I, I think this is kind of cool that you can set this up so that, you know, you're not really at danger of being without a connection, you know, so to speak. And that's pretty cool, man. I mean, I, you know, you guys said it all. I don't want to sit any toes, <laughs> you know. All right. <laughs> I mean, we're already at like 42 minutes in a raw, so. Let's, yeah, yeah. yeah. Are, are you okay with moving on, guys? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, that got a little long. That's and, all right. Uh, I mean, we've, you know, yeah, okay. if I end up doing something revolutionary and groundbreaking, I'll let everyone <laughs> right. know. Probably not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, uh, we don't really care one way or the other. I feel like I am uh, introducing Jason to new networking concepts every week. So, that, sorry. No. Sounds like you might be I, drinking. W- hello. <laughs> I mean, it's what we've been doing this whole episode, right? Also, for what it's worth, if you work with or in an environment, I guess, that has a lot of high availability sort of concepts and things, I'd love to talk to you about what you do. I'd love to explain a little bit more in depth things that I can't say on air, but I would love to express. And and we'd love to have you on the show if you're okay that with too, that. Yeah, I mean, if Thanks anybody, you. sort of just in general, if anyone ever wants to be on the show and you actually have something to talk to us about, we'd love to have you. So mm-hmm. reach out. Yeah. So with that, I'm going to move on to uh, Universal Unique Identifiers. So you Oh yeah, I'm excited for this. Mm-hmm. They're, I don't know why I find them fascinating, but I do. And it's the most nerdy thing to be fascinated about. <laughs> they are a 128-bit number that's, you know, it's in, it's in hex. And it's, I forget the exact measurement, but they're basically inexhaustible. We're probably going to hit the heat death of the universe before we exhaust the UUID space. That is not true. There are totally collisions. A UUID? It's a one in a billion chance. No, 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 no. It's more than that. Oh, wait, wait. Oh, holy shit. Okay. Wait, I'm reading this. So for there to be a one in a billion chance of duplication, there must be 103 trillion version four UUID is generated. Every second. That is a... No, not every second. It doesn't say that. It just says... Where? Oh my God. You're fucking monkey, dude. (laughs) Where where are you (laughs) reading this? number's equivalent to generating one billion UUIDs per second for about 85 There we go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's not 103 trillion a second. Okay. That would be, well, that would also be an ass load, but. My point fucking being, we're probably going to hit the heat death of the universe before we exhaust them. Thank God. Yeah. Because they're just so unique. I mean, they're huge and they're hard to remember, but they are easily recognizable. And once you know what they look like, you're going to see them everywhere. They're assigned to partitions, especially on Linux. This is really, really easily viewable. You can do, just do an ls-l dev disk by UUID. Boom. Those are UUIDs. They can be used for, like, if you've got, like, a customer relational database or whatever, they can be used for customer IDs. And the nice thing is you can programmatically generate them. So you can always be sure that a certain value will evaluate to a certain ID, always. So how is a UUID different than a hash? Hashes can be unwieldy and... The problem is we're finding... It basically is a hash, if you think about it, but it's not algorithmically specified. So in other words, you are you have a math formula, a mathematic formula, that w- first SHA-256, that you will always follow. Data in goes right. through this process, data out, you know? Or I guess hash out. UIDs are, are different because there's multiple ways to implement them, and it's kind of up to your discretion how you do. So it's not really such a limited application. So... Yes. And by default, you know, since there's no... Since it doesn't necessitate this mathematical operation, it's much faster to generate a UUID. That's actually what I was going to ask. Is like, is it actually, though? Yeah. Like, how is it... You don't need to generate it from the data. You can assign it to data. But how is it generated... You know, like, if you take a disk, like, disks are assigned to UUIDs mm-hmm. by Linux, right? If you take it out of my computer and put it in your computer, will it have the same UUID? I believe so, yeah. Okay, so that has to be calculated based on something, and what is that, that is, metric? Well, it's randomly generated, but it's stored on the disk. At least with so GPT, if, it is. If I z- okay, so if I zero the disk completely, 
and then give it I to you? I think it still retains its... You can change it, but I'm pretty sure it still retains that UUID. Huh. Yeah, like you, I'm a skeptic. Well, if you zero a disk, it doesn't touch the like the firmware at all. You can store stuff that doesn't get touched by a dev dev zero DD. What if you zero the super block? That does that's still on the di- that's still on the data part of the disk, right? It's not in the firmware. The super blocks aren't in the huh. firmware. I feel like I need to read about this now. Like what I mean, UUIDs more or, than I have to formatting. Yeah, no okay. UUIDs specifically. Because I know, like, a lot of user space tools for working with different file systems and such, mm-hmm. and encryption relies on UUIDs mm-hmm. to some extent. And actually, because it's, it's so reliable, yeah. Yeah, and so actually, I know I've talked about the F- FMA fault management architecture, I think, in Solaris before, but actually, like, crash dumps and stuff like that are basically assigned a UUID to pair it to events, which actually, son of a bitch, now it looks like I'm reading Wikipedia because okay. I scrolled down and that actually is cited here. Yep. Makes sense. Running operating system instance for the purpose of... Yeah, interesting. Okay, so I'm smart. Anyway, <laughs> I guess what I, I... I just don't understand how you can take a disk and identify it by UUID and then take a file and also assign it a UUID. Like, how are they the same thing, right? Like, Well, there's an RFC for it, and you should probably read the RFC, which I will, of course, link to because I, I love RFCs, but there is an RFC for it. It is... Uh, I'm going to have to look this up. Hold on. RFC 4122. And then there's ISO equivalents too. So if you're an ISO fanboy, you can, there's ISO IEC 9834-8. But RFC 4122 describes the UUID and how it can be generated and so on and so forth. So there's, it's uh, mostly yeah, you just being. It's drunk. really a fascinating. <laughs> what? It's so funny. Well, just like uh, dip, dip stuff. And ranting about UUIDs. I know, but I'm 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 drunk. You were doing the same thing. I'm drunk. I just want to say, as the guy that's not drunk right now... What? Yeah, You're what? Okay, yeah. well, there uh, we go. You guys are hilarious, because you guys are just... <laughs> welcome to Drunk various things. Yeah, but that discussion... Well... That discussion about HA was a good one. Yes, it was. I feel I, good about that. And you haven't been contributing! I didn't want to interrupt Jake then. He was, he was on a roll, man, you know? <laughs> oh my gosh. I did preface this entire episode by saying multiple times that it's a filler episode. So He also told yeah, me yeah. to maintain the glass half full. No, uh, I don't I w- think anybody told you to do that. I said I wanted you high energy. Yes, yes, we want you high energy. He and has I been. You have been high energy. I yeah. would like to say that I prefer to use UUIDs for quite a few different things. Definitely for you know anything related to setting up my drives. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's uh, it's a it's better than using a label or whatever. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Confusing. Well, it's especially important. Well, I don't want to say like critically important per se, but it's a lot better if you're referencing a RAID to use the UUID. Absolutely, right, exactly. yeah. Yeah, that's because partitions and well, names of volumes can change even though you don't want them to. You can have partition UUIDs too. Yeah, and absolutely. also there are and, also file system UUIDs, but I would not recommend those cuz if you reformat your file system, you know, high level format, not a low level format. If you reformat the file system, you're going to lose that UUID. It's going to be something something new. So that's Yeah, not just that though, but you know, changes to UDEV, for example, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe a year ago now, like last summer, I feel like, left a lot of people like all of a sudden finding their RAID instead of being MD0, it was like MD127. Mm-hmm. And people were like, "What the hell? My RAID's not mounting." Well, that was more so because of the the introduction of the reliance upon the host i know i know but still had you done it by uuid it wouldn't have even mattered well no it it would have the benefit there is it auto assembled it's still assembled it it, the device wouldn't have changed because it the change with that was it was more mda dm's reliance on there's a field in there for host right yeah and they made that sort of mandatory or at least they gave it a more important role in the newer versions of mda dm so if the host name or whatever didn't match up to that in the RAID metadata, it would assume it's a new RAID and auto-assign it that MD-126, 127, 128, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So it's not really UUID related because it sort of uses UUID by default, I guess. So it wouldn't have helped as much, but it, like grub issues, for instance... Something I always fucking forget to do every time on a new Arch install, usually in a VM, is to do grub make config. And I'm like, why isn't it booting? Because I forgot to run grub make config. And what that does is that tells grub which UUID to look for, for the proper disk. And that is a pain in my ass because I always forget to do it. But... (laughs) But it's important because it's it's a way Grub can look for which disk because it, it doesn't have the kernel loaded yet. 
you know, so it doesn't know, it doesn't have a way of assigning a disk ID like dev SDA. That's in the Linux kernel, right? That's not part of Grub. Right. So if you use a UUID, it's always going to be, it's always going to know to look for a specific disk or partition or what have you. Well, I was just trying to mention, you know, what I like to use it for and try to get into the conversation here a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Jathan immediately launched into his whole thing that I was trying to say. Thanks, Jathan, for stealing my thunder, you drunk fuck. <laughs> All right. What are you, what are you trying to say? Uh, nothing. I mean, I just, uh, you know, I really liked it. I like it. Better for partitions, for hard drives, for, you know, anything that I need to track something without having to worry about, like, a label being changed, like you said. Mm -hmm. And definitely, you know, using it for a RAID is smarter. I use it on my current system, and I figured out, you know, which drive that I have that's my spare drive. So, Mm -hmm. same kind of thing, you know. And uh, I was surprised to see that the collisions that they're talking about require us to generate 1 billion per second for 85 years or so. I find that to be just fascinating that there's so many of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's pretty much it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah there's, it's a huge address space. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Whew. Yeah, okay? You all right? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. We're making... We got to cruise along. We are cruising along. High energy. Woo! I'm, I'm running out of steam though, so oh, no. I'm a right, man. So we gotta, we gotta run gotta, through this wait, last wait, 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 topic. Hold on. We gotta run through this. Wait, yeah, wait. I know, I know, I know, I know. So the last one is App Armor, app and armor. for those who aren't familiar, Ubuntu slash Canonical, however, you, however you want to phrase it, has this thing called App Armor, and it's wait a second, wait, 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 wait. Yes, you're right, but it's not that you can only use it with. I, all right, all right. I'm saying they came up with. Yeah, can well, I continue. But, you know. Yes. Okay. So they came up with with what they wanted to be an SE Linux alternative. Sort of, I don't know why, because SE Linux is perfectly fine, but yeah, whatever. <sighs> okay. Says you. So they, yeah, well. Yeah, that's just it. SE Linux is a pain in my ass. But it works. It sort of works. No, it, it works. If you set it up right, it works. No, you know why it doesn't work? You know why it doesn't work? Because people don't know how to set it up, yeah. Well, that's true, but because 90% of people don't bother setting it up, they just automatically, the first thing they do when they install CentOS or Red Hat is... SE Linux disable. Yeah, I know. Set and force equals zero. Yeah, sure. But we have talked about SE Linux before, and if you and don't know how to security. set it up, yeah. we'll link to it, of course. But if you don't know how to set it up, we can link you to some things that will help you set it up, because it's really important to know. SE Linux is fantastic once you use it right, once you use it correctly. That being said, AppArmor is not so great. It's I would definitely say it falls short because it relies entirely on the application layer rather than the sort of kernel layer. And it is it does run in kernel space, but it puts a lot more of the reliance on the application layer. Jathan, I know, is also not a fan of it. Jathan, why are you not a fan of it? No, I didn't say that ever. You definitely said you were not a fan of it. No, I actually And not so many words. You said it sucks. Wait a second. First of all... Yes. I'm just throwing it out there that if you go to the Wikipedia page for AppArmor, it says that the developer is Seuss. What? Yeah. No shit. I always thought it was canonical. So that's... That alone explains a lot. That's errata. Anyway... Yeah, we'll put that in errata. No, I, I actually don't use it personally right now. I am currently working on a project that I really can't talk about. <laughs> Then why you bring it up? Well, just to say that I'm trying to implement AppArmor as a means for sort of jailing Python processes. Mm-hmm. And it is something that I could do with SE Linux, but I think it's going to be a much larger task undertaking headache with SE Linux. So I'm considering trying to use AppArmor for this. And, you know, you sort of criticized it for relying on the application layer. But for some instances, I actually think that's a benefit. I think that being able to sort of implement a jail of sorts at the application layer is a powerful thing personally. Yeah, but do you want the application layer managing that? I think that you'd have to be very selective about when you're actually, you know, using it or what you're using it for, what the security implications are. But I think that in the event that you're trying to do something that's not, you know, super critical and you don't want to spend hours and hours writing SE Linux policies for... I don't think it would take hours, but... For a custom piece of software. Yeah. You don't think it'd take hours? No, I don't think so. For somebody who doesn't... tops. For somebody... That's hours. That is more than one hour. I said tops. That's still more than one hour. Realistically, it's probably going to be 45 minutes to an hour. Here's the thing. No. Depending on what you're trying to do. Yes. (laughs) You guys are funny. Even for administrators, though... And I'm not saying this is you or me or Payton or anybody else. I'm just saying, in general, if you were to talk to 50 sysadmins, right, how many of them would be proficient with SE Linux? One. Okay, exactly. But that doesn't make it the wrong tool to use. No, no, no. I'm not saying that. That just means means people don't care to learn. 
Look, I'm not bashing SE Linux. I'm the first person that fully admits that I try to make SE Linux work for me as opposed to just turning it off in majority mm-hmm. of cases. And I think that more people should make the effort to learn about SE Linux or GR security or something like that that hardens the kernel specifically. But the other thing is even a lot of people who are like, oh yeah, I have SE Linux running, it's still like they take an error they're getting from permissive they paste it into Google. Somebody gives them a command that's like, oh, well, you know, import this policy and they just do it. So if you're not actually understanding what it's doing or whatever, and, you know, this is a whole nother discussion, but. Well, yeah, part of that, though, is like even in the log, it tells you what exactly what to add. To no, I, I'm absolutely with you. So like the, the whole Googling step, and this is why I think well, you've got a flawed argument here. The whole Googling step is absolutely unnecessary, but people don't care to learn how to even interface with that, with SE Linux. Hmm. Well, yeah. And, you know, there's even a tool, actually, where you can paste the error in and SE Linux will tell you how to fix it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're definitely a tool. So my point is, there's no excuse except laziness, which isn't a proper excuse. It's it's not a valid excuse. In any case, I think SE Linux is overboard for certain applications. I don't know. I... And See, I think that AppArmor is a reasonable, reasonable alternative. Not, no, no, no. I don't even want to say alternative because they're different products altogether, I think. Mm. So, so okay. here's the thing is yes. what I like about AppArmor is you can restrict certain programs capabilities mm-hmm. based on profiles, right? Mm-hmm. And socket access. And you don't have to apply that to anything but a single application. So if I'm focusing. You can do that with SE Linux. Sort of. No, you you can. You can't. No, no, no. You can't just tell SE Linux to you know ignore Python but acknowledge Perl over here. No, it doesn't work that way. It's either on or it's off. What SE Linux At policy? A cur- no, you can yes. absolutely tell to ignore Python and, and allow Perl. I. It's not yes. quite the same. No, you you it absolutely can. Same. You're. you're <laughs> you absolutely can, Jathan. Yeah, but I don't think it's the same thing. <sighs> All right. The look. The problem I have with AppArmor besides what I want to do? You know what, what this makes me want to do? What? This makes me want to get, like, a couple security people, like, people who are smarter than you or I, <laughs> at least with regards to this, on the we'll, show. We'll get AppArmor and SE Linux devs on the show do to it. battle it out. Do it. All right. Well, let me put it... Th- let me pose two things to you. First of all, AppArmor is also a piece of shit. <gasps> it's crashy. You can't just say it's, that. No, I, I can. It's crashy. It's buggy. It's not well-developed. It's really not as mature as SE Linux, period. Okay, here's the thing. If you look number at a product... Number two, before you go, go on. Number no, two... No, go ahead. I'm, I'm pasting you a link. You just keep talking. <laughs> pasting me a link? Okay. Shit. What was I going to say for number two? Yeah, you don't even what have did a number you, two. No, I do. I do. What did you say right before I started talking? God damn, I don't remember. <laughs> See? See? It's cause, all because you fucking interrupted oh me. Oh, my God. We're going to lay off the freaking oh, booze, maybe. Shit, no, this man, is a this fun is... episode. It is. It's good. We're doing it for the fans. That's why I kind of like filler episodes because we have more room to rant. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we had a real discussion about HA stuff. (laughs) Yeah, well, whatever. I'm not saying that ranting doesn't automatically include uh, valid stuff, but I was going to say something else. I really liked the HA discussion and I wanted to interrupt, but you guys were just on the ball with it. I asked you! No, no, you did ask me. I asked at the end. I asked. I was like, "Hey, do you have any input?" No, no, I was able. To, I was glad to provide that input, but uh, you know, I okay. didn't want to. I didn't want to interrupt you guys. You guys were on a roll, man. You know. All right. Guys were killing it softly with his song. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my god. Jathan. 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 I'm over. Jay- don't. No, not on the air. Don't do this on the air. How many figures am I holding up, guys? Just wait. Just hold on. <laughs> okay. Paid in. Do you have anything to say relevant to App Armor? No, I don't have anything relevant to say about App Armor. Onto the baddie. Okay, no, no, no. I'm going to close this out. I think AppArmor is the wrong tool to use, especially if you're already on a rail system. So you think there's never... Well, nobody assumed that, first of all. So you think that there's never... I know never... that you're a rel in, in old Unix shop. Okay, but anyway... Yes. So you think there's never a legitimate case to use AppArmor over something like SE Linux? If you're using Ubuntu, maybe. But that's because it's cooked in so deeply that it's... It is not. It's not even developed by them. Yeah, but it's cooked into Ubuntu is what I'm saying. It's cooked into every kernel since like 2.6, dude. Uh, kernel support, but it's not part of the actual user space. AppArmor is in Ubuntu. Okay, well, I don't even know because I don't use it. Ah! Oh my god. <laughs> Ubuntu is bad. Don't use that. <laughs> oh my message. god. Some people don't have a choice. They inherit a network from someone else and they don't have the time I know, or resources. That's fine. Or... Oh I have one VM with Ubuntu on it, all right? All right. All right. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> this has been... I feel like I'm, I'm cheating on the Red Hats. <sighs> Jesus H, we need to 
we need to finish this up. All right, it's just, only just go to the fucking downhill. baddie. If I think of what I was trying to think of, I'll interrupt you. Is like probably don't interrupt me. All right, so that's rude to interrupt. <laughs> it's my show. I don't care. Go. All right, so first of all, I'm sorry that we've divulged so far, and <laughs> oh I'm God, really bad at this up. podcast thing. Just Why do you preface it with like baddie. five minutes for every baddie? God damn! Just <laughs> shut up and go. Go, baddie! Now, high energy. Wall Street IT engineer hacks employer to see if he'll be fired. High energy. From, from bleepingcomputer.com. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Wall Street engineer was arrested for planning credentials logging malware on his company's servers. According to an FBI affidavit, the engineer used these credentials to log into fellow employees' accounts. Shame on you. Not going to read the rest of the story, yeah, but, but essentially... you really should. Not you, no. Jathan, but like our, our listeners <laughs> yeah, no, really you should, should read the whole thing. You should listen. So basically this guy who works for a Wall Street company, well, he claims that he did all this just to see if he would get fired. And Which isn't a valid excuse in the first well, place. Well, that's a, but... a little misleading, basically, right? Like, it seems like, oh, I wonder if I find these vulnerabilities or or exploit this, if they will fire me. No, but no, in no. Fact, no. In yeah, fact, yeah, yeah, what yeah. happened... It's a mistitle, yeah. Yeah, is they, they this company said. was planning layoffs of some sort, and this employee wanted to see if he was part of the layoffs or the downsizing. <laughs> so he basically stole information and hacked other employees' accounts to read their emails to see if he was going to get fired. And how did he get caught, Jathan? Uh, that's a good question. Do you want me to just tell you? He actually admitted to it by way of email. Well, they... All right. I'll, I'll tell you why they suspected him, and, and I, I guess that's how he confessed, but... They caught him because he was RDPing into active sessions people were using, and it was locking them out. <laughs> and they traced his unique, I don't know, Windows, so I don't know how they do it, but... Oh, yeah, I see it here. There's a yeah. unique way of identifying a client. No, you don't even... So, here's the thing, is if, if we were both connected <sighs> to the same Windows machine by RDP, mm. if you were logged in and I tried to log in, I would get a message that says, Brent is already logged in, would you like to send him a message asking him to disconnect? And you would basically have to say yes or no. Really? Used to You used to be able to just force them off if you had admin privs. And I don't know, yeah, so I don't know, basically, if you're an admin, how that works, or I don't know if there's, like, a security setting where it won't show the name of who's trying to connect sort of over top of you or whatever. Supposedly, it they caught him because it had some sort of unique identifying thing. Like, maybe his IP address, but... Hey. Yeah, either his IP <laughs> or his username or whatever. In any case, that's <laughs> fucking stupid. It's so fucking stupid. This guy... And, and the way he initially got access is he installed backdoors. Yeah, he did. And what's even funnier, not really funny, I mean, I'm sorry. Uh, oh, no, I'm, no, I'm laughing. I'm laughing on the inside about that. Okay, so fine. What's funnier is, you know, he probably wasn't even going to get fired, but he definitely got fired now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely got fired. <laughs> oh, sweet justice. Justice. Yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, that's a good Note baddie. to self and others. Yeah, so not only did he get fired, he's now facing, was it criminal prosecution or private prosecution? It's an FBI-level investigation. Oh my gosh. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So our hats off to you, idiot. Here's your baddie. You got a baddie, and this isn't even the kind of baddie where you, well, maybe you did. I hope you learned something, but also... I doubt it. This yeah. isn't one of the ones where I feel bad for him at all. He totally had this coming. Yeah. And we're not proud of you for how you handled it. No. <laughs> no, Ray, we're not proud of you for how you handled it. That's right. That was, that was dumb. This is, this is no GitLab, that's for sure. No. That's right. Oh, gosh. What do you guys say we close this out? You ready? You done? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm so ready. We actually had good time on this yeah. episode for a fella. Yeah. Usually on, on fillers, when we just brand, it stretches on and on, but we, we're making good time. All right. So that's been System Minutes Trivia. This is Brent. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Pete. See What's on your plate today? Come on. Can you squeeze me? Like a, like a triangle fin. Come on. Like a tongue in cheek. I've been looking for easy love. When graveled by the bitter wind Sharks infest the heart Wanna hurt to be on top Everyone is vain So-called sinner, so-called saint Organs for love If the freeze-out comes, they stop It's getting hard to meet someone Whose hands are warm with wrath Whose face has 
to break face Short is the path From a hand squeeze to the final lap Love at the attack Make sure it is rough enough It's getting 